0: How can one forget what something is that you have done for pretty much the first Sunday of the month for 26 years? How can you possibly forget that that's coming up month by month? And yet, I do. And all that is to say is that means that My sermon was prepared for a longer period of time than I actually have this morning, which means this will be part one of part two, which is actually part one of part two of part 42 of the entire series in the book of Mark to date. That's right. This is the 42nd message on it. We are working our way through the gospel of Mark. Today we are starting chapter 11. First, by way of some review, and by the way, our messages are available online, so you can uh, go to our website currently. Yes, all right. And if you should ever find that that is down, I usually hear from hear about it from Florida. Uh, Dick Perry lets me know. I mean, sometimes I'm on my way home from church Sunday morning. How come your sermon's not up? I'm like, well, for the love. So Libby, you got my back, right? By the way, love you, Dick. Most of the time. We can edit that out, can't we? Yeah, okay. Well, what I want to do this morning, may be a little hokey, whatever, and I don't even know why I'm doing this, but I want to kind of, kind of? I don't know. I want to kind of view the Gospel of Mark, um, as we've been all these months in it, um, more as a theatrical presentation. And by that, I mean that Mark has been setting the stage, and his fashion in this little drama is he jumps from scene to scene to scene very quickly, oftentimes without explanation or transition, to accomplish the purpose of the particular vignette, and then he abruptly jumps out to another scene. Well, this morning, you know, we haven't really been to Act 2 yet, Right, You usually have various scenes within an act and then the curtain comes down and you prepare with the setup and the the props and all that for the next act. Well, this morning, finally the curtain is going to come down and we are going to set up, that is Mark, is going to set up for the next act in our passage. Well, Mark's style, as I've already alluded to, moves very fast intentionally because he knows his readers. And the culture of the readers is different than the culture, say, of the Jews, and so they were much more inclined to, to thinking faster, to moving ac- a faster. They were just uh, much more so a people of action. And you've even noted, we've noted, that over the past several months that Mark uses the word immediately in the text over and over and over again. And in fact, he uses it over 40 times saying, and then immediately they went here and they get there and then they finished that and they got up and immediately they went over here and then immediately the disciples went out there. And then immediately Jesus went over 40 times to emphasize this idea of booming and keep going fast because again, the culture and the mindset of the Gentiles was just kind of, you know, the type A's, uh, which I appreciate ever so much. So Mark was writing predominantly for a Gentile audience. And because he knows his audience, he knows that they have no background in Jewish history. And they certainly had no interest in the details of Jewish history. And so this is why, unlike in Matthew's record, which is being written to predominantly a Jewish um, audience, Matthew uses over twice as many Old Testament citations in his gospel as Mark does, who rather glosses over Jesus' Jewish elements, leaving only the things that are necessary to really establish the prophetic and the historical foundations of what theologians call salvation history. So in a sense, Jesus' public ministry is basically accomplished. I mean, by all that he was doing in his travels and his journeys with the disciples in their three-year period, we are winding down to the end. And now today we are moving on to what in the theatrical world is called the denouement. It is a French word. We would say denouement as Americans. But it is denouement. I know you wanted to know this. And it is the point in a stage production, in a play, where all the plot lines, whatever there may be, all come together And they find resolution finally. It's kind of like the big climax where all the things that were left hanging or open are now answered. And you can proceed to the end of the play. The scene just prior to this morning's beginning of the end was the poignant comparison of those who, while they possessed perfect physical visual acuity, we've seen that are nonetheless effectively blind or at least visually impaired to the realities of the kingdom compared to those who may quite literally be physically blind and can't even distinguish light from dark and yet have a very sharp spiritual vision. So Passion Week is immediately in front of us and chapter 10 concludes with the seeing wealthy ones who presumably were full of knowledge and experience, and yet we find them, with all their knowledge and their experience, arguing about who is the the greatest in the kingdom. And we're even privy, Mark lets us to be privy to two of them, who were demanding of Jesus that he save two seats of honor for them in the kingdom. And of course, Jesus turned them down flat. But in the way the text is laid out, Mark compares them... To poor old Bartimaeus, a blind man of poverty, who with little knowledge of Jesus and even less experience with Jesus, comes to Jesus with a childlike faith. Bartimaeus, who although is visually impaired, spiritually he could see quite clearly, and Jesus gives him exactly what he asked for. With, visually acu- with visual acuity obtained, the once blind Bartimaeus, what's he do? He gets up, now seeing, and he follows after the Lord, while the seeing-impaired disciples continue to stumble their way in Jesus' steps, making plenty more missteps along the way, as you know, if you know the rest of the story and how it all plays out. Well, continuing now in my lame theatrical illusions, the house lights are flashing, yes, Which means intermission is over and you are supposed to please return to your seats because the next act is about to begin. So we begin in Mark chapter 11. Just call me Hokey PB today. Beginning in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately, he will send it back here. Well, they went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. Now, one scholar, you know, and those are the quotation marks around scholar, asserted rather in passing in one of the things that I read, that it should be obvious that Jesus clearly had previously made arrangements for all this with the owner of the cult, thus allowing this to take place. But see, such a scholar is predisposed to removing the possibility of the miraculous when it comes to the Gospels, ironically. They are called liberal, unsaved theologians. No charge for the commentary. Well, this whole assertion about Jesus prearranging this just isn't going to hold up under scrutiny. First of all, nothing in this text or in any of the other texts, it gives us any reason to think that Jesus had prearranged this. More significantly, Mark has always been engaged in having a huge emphasis on demonstrating what? On demonstrating Jesus' authority over everything and everyone. So he sends two of the disciples ahead to procure a cult. And if, not when, but if they are stopped or questioned about it, they're supposed to say, uh, the Lord needs it. And whoever they say that to is going to just send them on their way. Now, strangely, the disciples go into town and by all appearances, start stealing someone's animal. But some neighbors are standing around. They must have had a neighbor watch already organized in that community. And they're out there on the street in the hood. And they see these two characters come up and start untying tying this colt. And they're concerned and they say, hey, walk away from the colt. And the disciples respond just as instructed by Jesus. And what happens is they say, oh, okay. Well, now not to beat a dead horse, or in this case a donkey, As the case may be, if Jesus had, in fact, prearranged the disciples to take the donkey, as some have implied, wouldn't you be sure to tell the disciples to make sure, here's the guy that you want to talk to, because I've already talked to him, and I've greased his palm or whatever it takes to arrange this so that it all take place. That's not what happens. They just go in, and they start taking his thing. And those on the street tell him to get away, but they say, "And okay, so they send it on his way. Well, the so-called rational explanation that Jesus made prior arrangements just doesn't even make sense. The bystanders have no authority, first of all, to, to let some strangers walk off with somebody else's property. But when you're the owner of the universe and you are the creator of the souls of the people that are standing around watching this happen, you can orchestrate whatever you want. That's not the easiest lesson in life to grab a hold of. And a man by the name of Job learned this, the most difficult way imaginable. When Job was in the throes of his confusion and his grief and his anger, raging at the Lord, demanding answers for the horror that had come his way in losing family, losing losing extended family and close family and losing his possessions and losing his personal health even. He demanded answers, understandably. And what happened is that the Lord revealed himself to Job in a brand new way. You see, Job had a phenomenal faith in Jehovah, so much so that God was impressed. God was so impressed that we're told about it in the opening chapter of the book by the name of Job. In verse 8, God himself says about Job, There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So when Job is in the midst of this unfathomable loss and grief and pain and suffering, Job wanted to know why. And God never tells him why. Instead, he gives Job a spiritual eye transplant. And way towards the end of the book, Job sees In a whole new way and he exclaims I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eyes see you and therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes of what was Job repenting Job just wanted answers Job demanded answers, but the Lord opened his eyes in a new way, giving him clearer spiritual vision than he had ever had. And once that happened, the answers that Job absolutely thought that he just could not live without were no longer necessary. Never got the answers, but it was no longer necessary. Do we ever long for a revealing of God like that in our lives? Do you need a revealing of God like that in your life? It is a great thing to crave. It is a worthy thing to crave. So the disciples go to get the colt for the master of the universe. The people say, excuse me, get your hands off the animal. They say, yeah, but the Lord needs it. And they go, oh, okay. So, Jesus didn't need to pre-arrange this. Call me crazy, but if Jesus can calm the storms, if Jesus can defy gravity and physics by walking out on the water and over the surface of the ocean, if Jesus can heal blindness with a word and with a word he can raise people from the dead, I don't happen to have a problem with him exercising his divine prerogative or eminent domain over the ownership of a donkey. But that's just me. Verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and they put their coats on it and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And for all that you read in commentaries and online and in the footnotes in your Bible, nobody really knows exactly what Hosanna means. It's not Greek. It's not Hebrew. It is Aramaic. But it was probably e- either a colloquialism or an idiom. And the best that anyone can, can can decide that it probably does come close to is it basically means and means in some fashion or another, Lord save now. But in a messianic context, which is what we're talking about here, we're coming out of an Old Testament era. And so in a messianic context context, the shouts of Hosanna means thy kingdom come. Now, Lord, meaning usher in the messianic kingdom where God will rule and reign on earth and establish his kingdom to to, uh, reassert the position of the Jewish people, of God's special people, as rulers of the world once again. What is important to know is that this particular vignette is one of many fulfillments of prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. And it comes way, way, way long ago in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, which we need to understand because it was recorded for us. Remember that Luke records in twenty chapter 24 that when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, Luke notes that Jesus, beginning with the prophets and all the scriptures and Moses, he explained to them all the things there about himself. So we go to Zechariah chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. And Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord's eye is on humankind as well as on all the tribes of Israel. By the way, you won't find these particular words, in other words, this uh, translation anywhere. Um, It is the translation of an old dearly departed friend, mentor, uh, advisor, and professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School named Thomas McComiskey, professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages. And Hamat also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a fortress, and piled up silver like dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire." Ashkelon will see it and they'll be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover the king will perish from Gaza and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. Isn't this upbeat and cheery? And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. You all know the Philistines, the most renowned or infamous one was Goliath. The Philistines would be the arch enemies of the Jews for many, 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 many years. I will cut off the pride of the Philistines and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and a crown like a Jebusite. But but I will camp around my house as a posted guard to protect them from those who march back and forth and an oppressor will not march over them again because now I have seen with my eyes. The first verse here is bursting with relevance for the United States of America and where we are currently situated politically, morally, and spiritually. In the Old Testament, the the passage in, in Zechariah began, the Masad Debar Adonai, it means the burden of the word of the Lord, and it is a cognitive force active in the affairs of nations affecting Yahweh's purposes in history. In other words, God reveals through the burden of His word that He is not uninvolved in the affairs of the world. It is an official decree of sorts indicating that God's eye is on all nations at all time. And in fact, as spelled out in this prophetic word, Yahweh is stirring up the nations. Yahweh, God, the creator of the universe, God Almighty, Pantocrator, the Lion of Judah, He is the one who is creating upheaval among the nations. But amidst that upheaval, in verse 8, God declares, But I will camp around my house as a posted guard to protect them from those who march back and forth and an oppressor will not march over them again, because now I have seen with my eyes. Who is the them that is here being spoken of that God will not permit the nations to march over? Here in the context of Zechariah historically, yes, it is God's people, Israel. But it is for all who put their faith and trust in Adonai right from chapter 1 in Zechariah's prophecy, the very thing that is being underscored is the Lord's knowledge of world affairs. But not just that he has knowledge of things going on, but he's off in the distance somewhere, vacationing out in the far reaches of the universe, creating galaxies. It's not that he simply has knowledge of world affairs. It is that he intervenes in history on his people's behalf. And that ought to create in us a response of cheering. And that might become a real reality. Come November. In the immediate context of Zechariah, the forecast is of the certain destruction of Philistia, meaning the the seat, if you will, of the dastardly, godless Philistines. And what should be a bit eye-opening to us right now today is that verse 6 explains that the means by which, oh, get a hold of this, the means by which the arrogant pride of the city of Ashdod, which was because of their abject waywardness from Jehovah, the arrogant pride of the city of Ashdod will be taken down by a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Let me put that in other words. People not native to the land will occupy it and they will displace the original populace. A race of mongrels will displace the population of the inhabitants of the Philistines. There is so much relevant crossover and application to the very situation in the world today. It isn't detailed in Zechariah's prophetic utterance. Gaza is also in a world of hurt. I had the map put up here because of what I wanted you to see is that this is real life today. Okay. This isn't something that happened. I mean, this happened, yes, you know, thousands of years ago. But we're talking about places that are currently on our map and in our news. Gaza is over here on the, the coast of Israel, just above the little bend in the, uh, uh just above Beersheba. And Ashdod is above that. And then, oh, by golly, look what's over here. Syria. Anything going on in Syria today? Anybody ever heard of Aleppo? Somebody help Gary Johnson figure out what Aleppo is, where it is? <laughs> yeah, I heard that little interchange on, oh my goodness. Running for the President of the United States Libertarian Party. So what do you think of Aleppo? A what? Aleppo? Aleppo? What's that? I could excuse if he, never, if he didn't know where it was, but I don't even listen to the news. I'm on the news fast as much as I can. I get basically my information from Facebook and you know that's always true and relevant. (laughs) Even I know where Aleppo is. Gary Johnson, well, (laughs) wow man. If you don't get what that is, he's very pro cannabis sativa. And I think he runs on a constant buzz. No charge for the editorial. What we don't want to lose sight, though, of here is the encouraging word which Yahweh is protecting his people. Verse 9 is the capstone of that promise. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, quoting my late mentor. The promise of God's watchful care over his people continued in the preservation of this ancient people until Jerusalem witnessed a king entering its gates on the foal of a donkey. Written over 500 years before the event of what we are in this morning in Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What Mark wants us to see is that the pseudo-scholars of our day who love talking about and are incessantly of search of the one they call the historical Jesus as opposed to the Jesus of Scriptures who is in fact God Almighty. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He is supernatural. He is the miraculous. He's the wonder worker and all of that, which is why you get such asinine explanations for the thing with the coal, the, the coal, the foal, the donkey where Jesus obviously prearranged it because it can't be supernatural always in search of the historical Jesus, they want us to believe that Jesus was merely a pawn in a political tug of war. But as world-class apologist William Lane Craig writes, Mark wants us to see that Jesus is not the hapless victim of events which are spinning out of control. Rather, he remains the sovereign master of his fate as he chooses to go to the cross. That's going to become even clearer still when we get into chapter 14. So Jesus makes his entry to the accolades of the thronging populace. And then we're told that he came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Now, what at first blush seems like an odd passage Mark throws in. It is the story of the non-producing fig tree. In Luke, it is placed after what's going to be coming in Mark. It is placed after Jesus' cleansing of the temple. In Mark, it is placed before the cleansing of the temple. The placement of the story by both writers is informing. Verse 11. On the next day when they had left Bethany, Jesus became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And Jesus said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples were listening. Why would Mark underscore that if this wasn't important What is judged by some commentators, scholars again, to be a strange passage at best and by some others actually say that it is a total fabrication and a total insertion into the historical documents and it shouldn't even appear in the Bible. Worse are the contentions that either Jesus made a mistake in destroying somebody else's property, meaning his cursing of the fig tree, Or he didn't understand the nature of fig trees as to their fruiting schedule, which I find absolutely amusing. The creator of the universe. He didn't understand the fruiting schedule of the fig tree. And that's supposed to be intellectually more plausible than Jesus is divine. On first blush, I indeed thought it is an odd insertion. But after a little thought, it isn't so difficult to figure out. Let me look at it this way using simply three quick points. One, a fig tree is discovered along the roadside not an uncommon occurrence for a fig tree that is wild bird planted whatever to be growing up of which passers by freely and part of the culture didn't have to get permission because it usually wasn't even necessarily anybody's it was there and if it had fruit on it you partook of it and ate it it was part of your your sustenance as you made your travels secondly There's no fruit on it, which means it is either going to do, which means it isn't going to do a thing for Jesus and the disciples' hunger, nor for anybody else that comes along. And third, as it stands, Jesus declares the tree worthless, which it is at that moment. Remember, and the disciples were listening. That's Mark's way, the Holy Spirit's way through Mark of saying, it's an object lesson. Don't become so stupid about the schedule of fruiting trees. This story is not about agriculture. It is about anthropology. It is about mankind in general, not just Israel. So let me be a bit crass, perhaps, but straightforward, if not overly simplistic. Jesus gives an object lesson about a good appearance accompanied by uselessness. Think of what is the next scene that we're going to be in, which we would have been in if I got my days and schedule right myself. It is the cleansing of the temple where Jesus runs into the faithful of all stripes and what he sees he is not pleased with who did Jesus routinely and perpetually till the end get more upset with than any people group it was those who had the appearance by design of being the holy and the godly ones called the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. They went out of their way to make sure that they would be seen amongst the crowds gathered while they are in prayer before God. Maybe one eye opened, is a crowd gathering see me? Look how holy I am. And like the fig tree, they looked good and they were absolutely Useless now Jesus comes to the temple and he's going to start getting rid of the useless, non-fruit-bearing people. Looking holy, looking the part of the believer, even thinking that you're the believer, but having a long history of barrenness When it comes to fruit, when it comes to producing, when it comes to doing anything for the kingdom of standing for Jesus, of taking the place of righteousness in culture and society, you are that fig tree with all these great-looking leaves and everything else. Maybe you got a perfect attendance button in Sunday school, and boy, you're in church at least once a month, which in our culture increasingly is becoming pretty outstanding. Think about little Leah, 15 years old, four to five hours walking to church. Are you a good-looking fig tree today? But there hasn't been a fig produced in a long, long time. And this is something that we need to give a fig about. I know, right? Thank you, Pastor, for letting me breathe. <sighs> It's a good examination. It is the setup for next week's story. Let me have you stand. And since I forgot who's supposed to pray today, I'm going to pray. (laughs) Lord in heaven, thank you. You know each one of us that are in here today. You know which of us, Lord, really are gaming right now. We're going through some kind of motions for the sake of of maybe appeasing somebody, of keeping them off our back. Or we're just doing it because it feels good and so I can go out then and, and never produce any fruit whatsoever but come back in and shake my beautiful looking leaves and make myself believe that everything is fine between you and me. Lord God, by your mercy and grace, give us that kind of of, of clear seeing of ourselves and who we really are, that we can repent in ashes and in dust like dear Job and have that revelation where though we have heard about you with our ears, we now see you through spiritual eyes, for it is for the glory of your kingdom that we pray. Amen. Amen.